Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Well, good evening, everyone, uh, to another Pituitary World News Live Talk uh, uh, show. We're delighted that you're here with us. Uh, Dr. Blevins, how are you today? I'm doing well. It's been a very busy week with uh, patient care and other academic responsibilities, but uh, doing yeah, that's very well. Good. Thank you. Uh, spring is in the air, uh, so that's great. So we have some uh, interesting subjects today to discuss, but I thought we would start with. Uh, but let me tell first. Let me tell everybody what we're going to be talking about today. So today we're going to discuss uh, in the second part of our show the. Uh, Symptoms and signs of pituitary disease, and uh, the review has some of those non-specific symptoms and signs. Also, um, you know, apply themselves, uh, and also um, how those uh, sometimes those those symptoms are uh, unrelated to a pituitary disorder. But first, I thought we would discuss uh, anything interesting that you've seen. I know that you've had some some questions that came through social media to you uh, that you've seen uh, posted, I think on Facebook or uh, uh, Instagram or uh, uh, LinkedIn, and I, I thought we would discuss those. So, yeah. So interestingly, one of the questions that I'm often asked in my practice. Um, in patients who are being referred for surgery is what are the complications of surgery? And uh, as fate would have it, there was a question on one of the different uh, patient-oriented uh, groups on Facebook just the other day about what are the complications of surgery? And it's, it's something everyone who has a tumor has on their mind. And I thought we should review it here. I don't remember whether we've done a prior podcast on the topic or written articles on it. There, there may be some information out there, but it's worthy of discussion. On the I think we have uh, several pieces of, uh, of, of uh, content in that, in that subject. So we will make sure that we put links on, on the article when we publish the podcast or recording so people can go see and review those. Yeah, That'll be great. So... When it comes to complications of pituitary surgery, I, I sort of divided into endocrine and non-endocrine potential complications. And uh, I usually find it best to talk to patients about their specific situation because the complications are in part related to what the underlying disease process would be, how big the tumor might mm -hmm. be, for example. So patients with smaller tumors are going to be less likely to have endocrine complications, whereas those with larger tumors are more likely to have endocrine complications. Everybody's worried about pituitary function, and uh, the, the analyses that are published in the literature indicate that the larger the tumor, the more likely you have hypopituitarism going into mm -hmm. surgery, and the more likely you're going to have hypopituitarism coming out. Hypopituitarism means a deficiency that's either partial or complete of one or more of the different pituitary hormones. One particular study looked at macroadenomas and showed that if you have a macroadenoma and hypopituitarism of any degree, a third of people get better, a third get worse, and a third stay the same. Um, 
in general studies show anywhere between five to 40% of people have one or more pituitary hormone deficiencies or diabetes insipidus, or what we're now calling uh, ADH deficiency uh, after pituitary surgery. Uh, so it's important to keep in mind that uh, hypopituitarism is a risk and that risk is related to the underlying disease process and the size mm. of the tumor. It's also related to the uh, experience of the neurosurgeon uh, who's performing the operation. There are several studies that have been done that show the less experienced surgeon has a higher complication rate in regards to pituitary mm. function. Well, really in regards to all different complications of pituitary surgery, but certainly not only are the cure rates better with the more experienced surgeon, but the complication rates are higher with uh, the uh, less experienced uh, surgeon and lower with the more yeah. experienced surgeon. So that, that plays a role as well. And I know we've talked about this, um, but why don't you tell us what, in your mind, what's an experienced surgeon or, you know, in in terms of the you know all all pituitary centers or people that practice pituitary right. surgery so that's a very good question the best the best data we have comes from a couple of different uh, uh papers that looks at um it's really self-reported data so it's probably yeah. not good data but when neurosurgeons report their experiences and are said to be honest about it uh, it seems fairly clear that surgeons who've done more than three to 500 cases are experienced. Surgeons who've done under 100 are the least experienced and have the higher complications rates. So it's between you know, 100 and 300 to 500 uh, are sort of an intermediate level of complications. We know that surgeons who've done over 1,000 are better than those who've done 500. Surgeons who've done 3,000 are better than those who've yeah. done 1,000. So Literally, it's one of those things, the more you've done something, the better you are at it, and the less likely you are to cause injury to a pituitary gland if it's normal going in, and the more likely you'll see recovery of pituitary function in patients who have tumors that are compressing the gland uh, but not destroying the vasculature or whatever. Another study suggested a, that uh, a surgeon to be capable or qualified, whatever mm -hmm. term you want to use, to do pituitary surgery should be doing more than 50 cases a year. I think that's reasonable. That's a yeah. low number. If it's uh, if you're talking about the first 10 years of, of experience doing 50 a year, they've got to do 10 years of cases before they're up over yeah. 500. Um, with all of that said, we had a new surgeon that we added to our group. Uh, probably it's maybe it's been almost a year. Mm -hmm. He's excellent. You know, he's uh, out of his training and he is a mm -hmm. superb surgeon and he's He's doing as as well as pay, as surgeons who've done a thousand yeah. cases, as far as limiting complications and degree of surgical resection. So I think it it is a numbers sure. game, so to speak. But it also depends on the individual and their judgment and their their hands and their expertise and 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 their decision making inside the uh, the uh, operating yeah, suite as to whether or not you're going to see hypopituitarism as a consequence of surgery. And these are really general parameters that you would say for that for a patient. To, for us to tell someone, a, a, a patient, well, you know, if you're going to have pituitary surgery, the one question you really need to ask is how many surgeries has this, you know, surgeon that's going to operate. Yeah, uh, exactly. And you need to, and you almost need to ask somebody else, how good yeah, is this yeah. person? <laughs> you know, ask an endocrinologist, what what are you seeing? And the, on yeah. the other side, you know, are you seeing a lot of people who go in with normal pituitary function and come out with abnormal yeah. pituitary function? 
couple other comments I'll make in that topic is that uh, sometimes the diabetes insipidus, if you get that, it's going to go away, uh, the ADH deficiency. Mm -hmm. I'm trying get to used to it. <laughs> switch my brain, you know, the ADH deficiency, yeah. formerly known as diabetes insipidus, gets better and goes away, uh, you know, probably by six months. If you still have it, you're going to have it. But uh, uh, there are reports in the literature of ADH deficiency that's resolved after eight years mm -hmm. from surgery. Uh, I have seen a few people who have developed uh, sort of a downward slide of their growth hormone or the thyroid levels within the first year of pituitary surgery. Other people who've had remarkable improvement and come off thyroid hormone or testosterone within the first year after surgery. We usually check pituitary function six weeks after, sometimes three months after, sometimes six months after, and certainly a mm -hmm. year later. But I think it's important to recognize that your pituitary function may slide or change uh, within that first year after surgery. So you need to be followed fairly yeah. carefully uh, by someone, not just rely on six weeks data and say, hey, I'm done. I don't need to check this anymore because there will be changes that yeah. come later. And probably from a from a patient expectation standpoint, would be smart to expect that there may be some issues that they have to deal with it in terms of their function, pituitary function, post-surgery. Exactly. And I think the other important thing to recognize, it's not necessarily the surgeon didn't do a good job because some of these tumors, well, they derive, they come from within the gland. You know, it's a pituitary cell that yeah. forms a tumor and they, they grow blood supply from the blood vessels feeding the pituitary gland. And when you try to get a big tumor out, you, you're going to have bleeding of those same blood vessels that, that have other branches that feed the pituitary. And whenever you have bleeding, the coagulation system starts and you get clotting of those vessels and you may clot off all the blood supply to your pituitary and end up with hypopituitarism. So some people will have hypopituitarism after surgery that's totally unavoidable Yeah, uh, because of the anatomy of the blood supply of their tumor. And it's not, not necessarily the surgeon to blame, but the data do speak that it is, it is related to surgical experience. Um, so those are the, those are the, the mostly the hypopituitarism. When we talk about it, as I said before, it's a partial or complete deficiency of one or more pituitary hormones. Some people may have an IGF-1 that was reasonably healthy going in. Now it's low normal and they're going to have symptoms of growth hormone deficiency and probably need to be assessed and treated. Same thing with thyroid hormone. Maybe your T4 level was in the upper part of the normal range and now it's in the lower part and the doctor says, oh, the level's normal. I don't know why you're fatigued. Well, you're probably fatigued because you have relative hypothyroidism to where you were. So it's critical to know what your levels are uh, before surgery going in mm -hmm. and after surgery coming out. But to recognize that we don't really know what a person's normal results are if they have a yeah. tumor because the tumor may have already effaced their normal levels to some extent. Uh, so that's a, that's a, it's important to, to basically work with the physician who understands these small caveats of uh, pituitary disease to be able to interpret those levels to decide if you're better or worse mm -hmm. off after an operation. So those are the, the endocrine consequences of surgery. Some of the other consequences of surgery are that the pituitary sits in a socket on, on, on both sides of it are the carotid arteries, the cavernous sinuses, which is a complex of veins and the, and the, uh, the nerves that control eye muscle function. And either as a result of the tumor or attempts to get the tumor, you can have injury to any of those structures. So some people can end up with diplopia or double vision if one of the cranial nerves controlling one or both eyes is damaged. 
Um, some patients might have bleeding uh, after surgery or even in surgery. We've seen patients who've who've had uh, bleeding from the cavernous sinuses where they have to mm. pack that off. I've uh, testified as an expert witness in cases where the carotid artery was lacerated and the, the, the patient died and patients going to surgery need to know that there are important blood vessels and they could be injured as a complication of surgery. But fortunately, with experienced surgeons, that's a mm -hmm. rare complication. It did show up within experienced surgeons that there was a significantly higher complication rate of vascular injury to major blood vessels relative to more experienced surgeons. And it's another reason to consider an experienced pituitary yeah. center uh, if you're planning to have pituitary surgery. Yeah. Uh, so those are, those are real and they can happen and, and, it's, and it's critical. It's rare that you'll see a, uh, an injury to a cranial nerve, but I have seen that in my career. Uh, you know, if a timber extends in a cavernous sinus and its blood supply is interrupted, it may hemorrhage, and that hemorrhage is going to cause compression of the cranial nerves. So I've seen people who go to surgery, they have a tumor, the tumor that can't be removed and farts mm -hmm. and swells, They're, they end up with double vision. And of course, the pituitary sits under the visual pathways, and some people have visual field abnormalities after surgery. Um, um, it's rare, but it can happen. Most people, if they have visual field abnormalities before surgery, those visual field studies get better. But about 4% of people who have visual field deficits actually get worse mm -hmm. at the time of surgery. And this may be because the tumor compresses the blood vessels to the optic pathways and getting the tumor out injures those blood vessels and can cause partial blindness or uh, uh, loss of vision in one eye, for mm -hmm. example. Fortunately, those complications are rare, but it does happen. And I think that all patients planning to go surgery need to understand that if their vision's affected before surgery, there's a chance it might. Usually it's going to get better. Uh, I think the data are that 80% improve, about 15% mm. don't change, and about 4 to 5% actually have worsened visual fields after surgery. Uh, so patients need to be aware of that as well. Another potential problem is that the surgeon goes through the nasal passages and through the sphenoid sinus to uh, get to the pituitary gland. So there can be what we call sinonasal morbidity, and basically that can be uh, infections mm -hmm. in the nasal passages or sinus cavity. That can be sinus headaches uh, due to the healing and the swelling and the edema in those tissues. And uh, there can also be a nosebleed because some of those blood vessels are fragile and they might bleed a week or two after yeah. surgery. That's another uh, potential problem. I think I recall, um, uh, just to make a, 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 a note on what you're saying, I recall a presentation, and I believe it was Dr. Kunwar that made the presentation on the rate of complication from experienced surgeons mm -hmm. to non-experienced surgeons. And they, it's remarkable, the difference. I mean, I remember yeah. the bar chart. I think we have a copy of some of the slides, and we could put those available uh, for people to to look at at uh, on the site at Pituitary World News. Yeah. As we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago with Dr. Augie, some people have headaches yeah. after surgery. Uh, not all headaches get better. Some people have new headaches after surgery. I've certainly seen that. This is probably sinus involved, or maybe a nerve. Uh, was cut through to get to the pituitary, and it, those branches have to heal for that to to improve. The the I'm saving one complication okay. for last. 
obviously, there can be uh, anesthetic-related yeah. complications, and uh, people who have a history of coronary artery disease might have a, a heart attack during the operation. I've seen that a couple times yeah. in my career, where we didn't know that someone had heart disease and they had a, a heart attack afterwards. It did fine, but uh, still needed attention to that, and ultimately went on to cardiac catheterization and a stent mm-hmm. placement, you know, but uh, some of those things do happen even in patients who have no risk factors sure. and uh, you, you no chest pain history and seem to be pretty healthy. It turns out they had an underlying coronary artery lesion and, and the stress of surgery and anesthesia brings that yeah, out. Yeah. Um, so those are the main complications. The one I want to talk about is not very common. Maybe it is depending on the surgeon, but uh, we probably see it in 5% to 8% of our patients. Uh, it's probably happens in 20 to 30% of people with Cushing mm. syndrome, and that's hyponatremia. Okay. Uh, it may be more common in some disease states like Rathke's cleft cyst, for example, or craniopharyngioma. But uh, if the surgeon tweaks the posterior pituitary, some of those nerve cells can actually get injured and they'll stop making uh, vasopressin or ADH. And then a patient can have ADH deficiency with diabetes insipidus uh, for a short period of time after surgery. Some people never get that. But when those injured neurons that store or make and store vasopressin finally die, their cell bodies burst and they dump uh, ADH into the bloodstream and a patient retains water and gets hyponatremia. Usually if that's going to happen, that happens somewhere between uh, five to, to 10 or 12 days after pituitary surgery. I've seen it as late as three weeks. It's a potentially serious uh, consequence of pituitary surgery, because when your so when you when your sodium drops due to the fact that you're holding on to water at the kidney due to this hormone release, you're going to get swelling in the brain until the brain can adapt its volume to the new sodium level, and uh, the most common symptom and sign there is a severe kind of headache. Some people say it's the worst headache mm-hmm. in my life. Other patients notice a sense of imbalance or notice that they have a um, uh, discoordination or something like that. Sometimes it's a family member who notices it. The patient says, ah, I have a headache. The next day they're sort of having trouble ambling around. Uh, the, any, anybody within the first week or two after surgery who has a totally unexpected different headache like they've never had before needs to be tested for this particular yeah. condition. Uh, and usually we wait until someone's symptomatic. There have been a lot of studies where people get random sodium determinations certain days after surgery, but that doesn't increase the detection rate because someone can get a sodium five days after surgery, eight days after surgery, they're in the hospital with a severe headache and a very low, dangerously low sodium level. And uh, this is maybe more common in, with inexperienced surgeons, but even with the my surgeon, uh, my surgeons, all of them are excellent. But Dr. Kunwar, who I think is one of the mm-hmm. best in the country, Dr. Agi, also one of the best in the country, we still see hyponatremia after surgery and these guys are good. And it's just a consequence of the disease state having surgery in this area. It doesn't really always reflect uh, the uh, experience of the surgeon for this particular complication. And uh, patients need to be screened for this. uh, If they have the the headache, we tell all of our patients, if you get a headache, call us, but plan on being sent to the hospital to get a sodium level. And if it's uh, under 128, most of them are coming back to the hospital to be treated yeah. for this. And these disorder. are very specific headaches, no? As explained by Dr. Aguirre. Uh, you know, patients say that, that when they move any, any when they move their head, their brain hurts. It's one of the most common describe ways it. that people describe it. It's just a very severe headache, oftentimes with a little bit of nausea mm-hmm. or vomiting. Uh, and some people have uh, 
the discoordination or some sleep sleepiness with yeah. it as well. Uh, and you know, the, the worst thing you can do is say, Oh, I had surgery. It'll get better. You have to talk to the doctor about that. You have to get your sodium checked because that may need yeah. to be treated. Uh, one of the things that may or may not, we're not really sure, uh, decrease the incidence of this is fluid restriction after surgery. So we tell people we don't want you drinking a lot of fluids the first week after surgery and drink salty containing solutions as well. Tomato juice, Gatorade, yeah. what have you. That may or may not decrease the incidence of this. We don't know. But I think any, I think of any fluid as water and any water that you drink, whether it be water in the form of milk, Gatorade, tomato juice, Coffee, tea, yeah. you name it. It's yeah. all water and it will coffee. Yeah, it's all water and it can all make the situation worse. So we ask people to restrict fluid uh, for the first week or so after surgery because of that. But we've never done a controlled study to see if that makes it worse uh, mm. or better. Uh, or less likely or, or not. It may not make a difference yeah. whatsoever. But we do know that uh, when you release this hormone, you have the default of resorbing most of the most of the blood that's filtered by the kidney uh, and putting that water back into the system. And um, just little bits of that every day can result in a waterlogged situation where your sodium drops and your 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 having headaches due to the brain edema that comes as a result yeah. of that. So to me, it's the most potentially feared complication, mm -hmm. if you will, after pituitary surgery. And I, I always like to have patients let us know if they're having that yeah. headache uh, because it is treatable. And uh, we fortunately haven't had any adverse consequences of, of it because we're on it and we get patients in and we treat them. The good news is there's a drug to treat this. It's a drug called Tolvaptan. Uh, Beforehand, it used to be people would get fluid restricted, put in the hospital, and it'd be a seven to 10 day hospital stay just to get rid of all the excess fluid, which is usually several liters, like five to six, wow. seven liters for, for most people. And it takes a week to get rid of that. Uh, first off, the, the disorder of retaining the water has to go away, and then you have to be negative enough over the, over the course of time by withholding fluid. Uh, intake to to be able to get all the fluid out and the usual hospitalization used to be seven to yeah. ten days until this drug came out now it's 36 hours because the drug helps you dump the fluid it basically blocks the actions of the vasopressin receptor and gives you a situation where you have diabetes insipidus due to a medication uh, or an aquaresis yeah. we like to call it and, uh, and it just it gets rid of all that extra fluid and the sodium comes up at an appropriate rate and people go home and it never comes back. Most people require one dose. Some people require two. So we have good yeah, treatment that, for that. That's amazing. So that, that means that now with that drug in two days, or, you know, somewhere in there, you can, you, you can be back home if you have this. Yeah, this exactly. That's great. Yeah. And I, I don't know what other neurosurgeons are telling people, but uh, I would tell a patient if, if your neurosurgeon has, has not warned you about the risk of postoperative hyponatremia, they're not doing enough pituitary <laughs> operations. So, so that's probably the best question to ask if you want to find out how experienced your surgeon is, is how often do you see postoperative hyponatremia? If they say they've never seen it, they're not yeah. doing enough pituitary cases, in, yeah. in my opinion. Well, I, I will tell you that, uh, on, honestly, when, when I first uh, got that was diagnosed, I would have known none, none of these uh, questions, you know, to ask other than, I know yeah. you. Well, yeah. what we're... Yeah, what we're all about at Pewter exactly. World News is yeah. arming people with information so that they can help look exactly. after themselves because yeah. many of them are going to be involved with teams that don't have yeah, the that's precisely why and, I, uh, I you know, bring it up because it's so yeah. critical. So, 
So you had pituitary yeah. surgery. I have that was probably over seventeen hundred pituitary surgeries ago for my practice, maybe two thousand. Yeah. Uh, so I don't remember. Did you have any complications of the operation or no, any problems? No. Can you talk about your yeah, recovery period? I, the recovery was uh, pretty normal. I remember um, the only unpleasant part was the dryness and the amount of stuff that was coming uh, down through the nose, which which after mm-hmm. I learned, it's pretty typical. Uh, but uh, no, I don't, re- I, honestly, I don't recall any, uh, I, 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 the funny part, I always remember the funny thing, which was Dr. Kunra saying, don't sneeze. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, I, yeah, well, let's yeah, talk about because... that. Uh, they're, they're, that prompts me to mention a yeah, couple more things. Because it's, it's funny, so... I thought it was hilarious, because the minute... He said that I'm going. Mm, I think I have to sneeze. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then, you know, right. Obviously, the power of I want to explain that how you do it. So, which was that's pretty yeah. interesting. Anyway, yeah, yeah. He's better than a pollen in yeah. your nose, right? <laughs> Making you want to sneeze. Yeah. yeah. So those you you said some very important things that I think are worthy of mention because we get a lot of calls on it. So. A lot of people call and say they have a foul odor in their nose. Nobody else can smell mm-hmm. it, but they can smell it. This is usually dead tissue, maybe from the sinus cavity lining that's sort of uh, rotting, and you're smelling that rotting tissue. Um, sometimes it's the fat pack. If they put a fat pack in place of where the tumor was to sort of help seal off the bottom of the pituitary socket or maybe treat a smile for the leak, sometimes it's mm-hmm. a fat pack that's deteriorating and rotting, and you're smelling that. That usually goes away. It gets better. Occasionally, it's a sinus mm-hmm. infection. Uh, so anytime you have that smell, if you have an associated nasal discharge that's maybe greenish, yellowish, or brownish, you might need an antibiotic for sinus yeah. infection. Uh, and uh, so that's that's one of the problems. Another thing that can come through the nose is spinal fluids. So if someone has a watery, clear nasal drainage that uh, uh, happens within the first couple of weeks after surgery, or maybe even someone on a dopamine agonist drug to treat a prolactinoma that was huge. When that shrinks, you can unmask a spinal fluid leak. So any clear watery drainage that's not mucousy, there's a difference between clear watery snot and clear watery yeah. spinal fluid. You know, if it's mucousy like like snot, yeah. that's what it is. Sticky. Uh, some people do have what we call a vasogenic uh, rhinorrhea where they, after the surgery as the vessels are healing, there's a leakage of tissue fluids and it can mimic a CSF leak. But the clear watery leak that's sort of like if you bend over or strain for a bowel movement or whatever that sort of squirts out your nose, that's a spinal yeah. leak. I can't believe I didn't yeah. mention that earlier as a complication, so I'm glad you brought yeah. up the nasal stuff. And then every now and then, there, some surgeons use a little uh, pl- a biodegradable plate that they put uh, up in the nose to, to help you know, with a fat pack to help seal things off to heal a spinal fluid leak or to reconstruct the floor of the cella. And some people use bone to re- reconstruct the floor of the cell. And sometimes those yeah. things come out. People will have those those come out as well. Uh, and if you see a piece of plastic come out, it's not plastic. Your body was meant to destroy that over time. Just check with your doctor to make sure that uh, you're not going to have a, a leak or some, some other complication of that uh, supporting structure having come yeah. out. The whole reason that we don't want you to sneeze uh, or to inhale through your nose or, or anything like that is that um, these, these tissues are friable after surgery. It takes a while for them to heal up and seal off. And, uh, if, 
if you sneeze too much or, or, you know, you really should be mouth breathing and not nose breathing, but if you breathe through your nose and sniff a lot, sniffing is mm-hmm. the worst one or sneezing, uh, you know, a lot of people will just lightly sniff to get the fluids that yeah. come through the front. You're supposed to just blot those off. The big problem is if there's even the slightest little passage through the surgical area that leads into the spinal fluid space. And this is more common when there's a CSF leak. You can actually get air that bubbles up oh. into your spinal fluid and it, it doesn't get reabsorbed from the spinal fluid all the time. It can, but it doesn't get, if, if the air goes in faster than it can come out, you basically get what's called pneumocephalus, which is air around and in the brain. And that, that can be serious mm. and fatal. So, you know, if you have to sneeze, direct it through your mouth. Uh, yeah. Don't sniff. Uh, don't breathe through your nose unless you, you, you're a few yeah. weeks out, you know, uh, or you're sleeping or whatever. But uh, you don't want a lot of a, a high flow of air coming through your nose or out your nose uh, after surgery because of those potential yeah. complications. I've seen about three cases of pneumocephalus in my uh, career. Uh, one of those was fatal. Uh, if you look at uh, the uh, literature, probably 50% mortality rate. Hmm. So don't sneeze through your nose. Don't sniff. <laughs> yeah. The, the instructions were very, yeah. very, very clear, actually. I thought it, yeah. I thought it was funny yeah. because it, you get that initial, you know, the minute somebody says, don't do this, it's, you start thinking about it. Uh, so. <laughs> and, you know, sort of related to this, other potential postoperative complications we have to think about this day and age is that if you've had pituitary surgery, don't don't do a COVID test through your nose because you could you could literally those t- especially if it's within six yeah. months those tissues haven't yeah. fully healed they're not strong you your anatomy has been especially if you had endoscopic surgery your anatomy has been revised you stick that thing in your nose to do a COVID test you could stick it right through your pituitary yeah. surgical field into your brain and that's happened another thing is that if you've had pituitary surgery especially endoscopic don't let anybody put an NG tube in. An NG tube is a nasogastric tube. And if you have, if you go to the hospital with nausea and vomiting and gastroenteritis and all of that, uh, they may put a tube through your nose yeah. down into your stomach so that they can suck out the stomach fluid so you don't throw it up. There, there, are, there are cases where patients have died from the nasogastric tube being inserted into their brain mm. uh, as a result of the change in anatomy. Normally when we do this, the normal anatomy is bony so that the, the bony anatomy will direct the tube on down the back of the nose to the back of the throat. But if you don't have those bones to sort of resist the tube and cause it to bend and force downwards, it's going to go into your, into your pituitary area. And so into this, your is, brain. this is, this is, so these are we, things that happened recently. Are, I mean, after recent pituitary surgery, how much of the time, uh, Usually, but I would say that if you've had pituitary surgery, you probably don't need an azogastric tube ever. Okay. Uh, or have them use a soft one. You know, there are soft tubes, and the old nasogastric tubes are very, very firm and uh, sort of like an old stiff wire that you, you could bend and sort of push against something, and it just slightly bends. They're very, very rigid tubes. The newer ones may not have that same problem, but Every tube I've seen, even yeah. of late, I, I wouldn't want it in my nose if I'd had to do a Underlines how important this knowledge is, you know, for people that have pituitary surgery and they end up at a at an emergency room, or uh, and that they have yeah. to somehow be able to communicate with a with the doctors there to make sure that all of this is understood and known. Yeah. Um, so. 
One other complication I'll mention, I've only seen two cases of it in my career, but it might happen to somebody out there listening, yeah. is that uh, um, as the surgeon does the repair and uh, gets out of the pituitary and stops the bleeding, everything should be great. But I've had a couple of people in my career, this were uh, at other institutions, maybe once at uh, UCSF, who developed sort of a headache and visual loss within the first uh, uh, day after pituitary surgery. And when they scanned, they had formed a blood clot in their pituitary socket uh, just because of uh, not, uh, you know, having more bleeding after surgery. And it, and it, formed a pseudo tumor that compressed their visual fields and uh, uh, caused visual abnormalities and needed to have a repeat surgery to, to suck that out. But uh, that's yeah. extremely rare and that can happen to even the best surgeons. You know, that's just a complication of surgery as a result of the, the patient's ability to, to control their own bleeding with their coagulation system. I was, yeah. I was just going to remind everybody, if you joined us late, that we're, we're talking about in this first half, of the program of our complications of, with pituitary surgery. And we've been discussing a bunch of different examples from, and you had mentioned Dr. Blevins that you have, um, you had seen several comments on, on, uh, I think one of the social media that you wanted to discuss. Did you touch on those already or? Okay. I did. Yeah. It was just a general, general question about oh. complications. So, why don't we why don't we talk about some of the non-specific symptoms and signs okay. of pituitary disorders and how how they can be a trap for the unwary and what I mean by that and maybe what I want to focus on more is that um, these symptoms of pituitary disease and hormone deficiency states are very common symptoms to lots of different disease processes and. One of the things that I see as an endocrinologist is my patients will be on full hormone replacement and their levels are absolutely perfect. And they have a symptom of one sort or another and they go see their primary physician. The primary physician says, it must be your pituitary. You need to see your endocrinologist. And they're passing the buck. They're not taking the time to evaluate the patient's symptoms and signs and do appropriate testing and appropriate yeah. treatment. And it's pretty pretty irritating yeah. at times. Uh, and, and I think the nature of, of, of being human is that if we have a disease process or a disorder, we tend to want to presume that uh, anything and everything bothering us must be related to that particular mm -hmm. disorder. And that's not the case. Uh, a couple of patients that I've seen in my career, uh, I can relate. One of them had persistent fatigue and decreased energy and exercise incapacity. And and said, I just don't think you have my hormones straight now. And I said, your hormones are fine. You know, everything is perfect. You're in better shape than you've ever been hormonally. Well, my doctor says you're not doing a very good job. So I told him, based on his symptoms and signs, he needed a cardiac workup. And he finally agreed to let me send him to a heart specialist who found that he had what was called constrictive pericarditis. And he needed heart surgery to fix that. And then he felt like a million bucks. And he was very grateful to me because his doctor and even he were sort of challenging me that it was pituitary when it wasn't. Another patient I saw uh, came to me and complained that she had a rash and she absolutely knew that that rash was related to her uh, cabergoline to treat her prolactinoma. And I says, this, uh, you know, I've seen rashes with it, uh, certainly, but uh, your, your rash doesn't look like a regular rash to me. It looks to me like you have a platelet problem. Have you been on any antiplatelet drugs? And she had not taken any ibuprofen or anything like that. And she says, I know it's the medicine. I just don't want to take this medicine anymore. I don't like it. I'm feeling tired and fatigued and weak. And, 
and I'm having this rash. And to me, it's like, okay, this is probably low platelet count and anemia. So we worked up and she had a leukemia causing her, her to be anemic and to have a low platelet count. So she had to get admitted emergently for treatment of a leukemia that she was attributing to her medication as a side effect. Um, I've seen other patients who thought that they had thyroid problems and what they had was iron deficiency anemia causing fatigue. Same thing with hypogonadism. They thought that their testosterone wasn't right and uh, and uh, they ended up having anemia. One patient actually had a colon cancer and was bleeding in the GI uh -huh. tract. And in every one of these cases, and, and even more, there's a whole slew of them, the uh, primary physicians had uh, referred the patients back to us saying, I think that's your hormone problem. Your doctor doesn't have it straightened out. Uh, and I see on social media a lot that, you know, someone will say, I have this problem. Why doesn't my doctor pay any attention to it? I think it's due to my pituitary problem. Three or four other people chime in and say, yeah, me too. I have that as well. These doctors don't know what they're talking about. Most of the time, these these are common symptoms that uh, even I have, and I don't have any particular yeah. disease. I'm 60, and you know, the older you get, sometimes you start getting things. And and uh, the the and what I mean about the final common pathway is that there are a gazillion things that cause fatigue, weakness, decreased energy, sense of imbalance, what have you. You know, these are common symptoms, and and the proper way a physician should evaluate common symptoms is to consider a differential diagnosis. And, uh, and that's basically a list of what else could it be? What all could it be? Let me evaluate it. Example today, a lady says, I, I know you say my hormone levels are fine, but I feel, uh, I feel bad. I have uh, muscle aches and joint aches and complaints. And, and, uh, sometimes I run a fever and I said, have your doctor check you for a disorder called polymyalgia rheumatica. She's the right age group. And those are the symptoms. You know, there's just a, another patient that I had was complaining of tiredness and fatigue was sent for reevaluation of hormones. He had multiple sclerosis that, uh, you know, we set up an MRI because he was also having headaches. And it's like, oh, my gosh, these are new findings over the past year. We need to send him to a neurologist. Yeah. So I, I think it's critical to uh, as a patient when you have symptoms, if you have known pituitary disease and you have symptoms and signs, recognize that you have to see your endocrinologist to make sure that it's not an endocrine problem or a hormone imbalance. Maybe you start a new drug that impairs absorption of thyroid hormone, for example, or whatever. But keep in mind that uh, that's just part of it. The rest of it falls on your primary physician and your consultant physicians to sort of evaluate the rest of your body because we do have these final common pathway symptoms and signs. And we've known about endocrine diseases for, you know, let's say 100 years, really a little bit more yeah. than that. Uh, since endocrinology sort of came in line, we're still learning a lot every single day, but we know a lot of the symptoms, signs of signs of endocrine disorders and how to sort of relate the symptoms and signs patients have to their laboratory tests. And we know that even if, even though a test is normal, it doesn't imply that a hormone's not off because everybody has their own normal range and things like that. So I was going to ask you, so in all of these, just to clarify, in all of these cases that you just mentioned, uh, the primary care physician was, or the referring physician was saying this is a pituitary problem and not taking in consideration other issues. Yeah. Yeah. If pituitary problem, go back yeah. to your endocrinologist, let them solve yeah. it for you. And, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm trained in internal medicine and I like to, I couldn't practice internal medicine today. It's just so yeah. complex, but I, I like to think that my 
diagnostic skills and ability to listen to a patient can help point some of these people in the right direction. Uh, and I give I give all of them. Hey, have your doctor work you up for this or that or yeah. whatever, you know. And uh, and sometimes they have something I didn't even totally think of, but usually there's something behind it that's explaining it. And uh, and I, I I don't I don't think that it serves anybody in their own best interest to always think, well, it's my pituitary. The doctor just doesn't know what they're doing. And I see a lot of that kind of a commentary online. Uh, I think the answer is I want to go back to my primary physician. From a cardiologist or a rheumatologist and try to figure out precisely yeah. what's going on and get some answers because it doesn't all reside in the endocrine system or the pituitary. So for, from a patient standpoint, a good way to think about this is don't blame everything on the pituitary if you have pituitary disease. There may be other other exactly. things going right. on. So, yeah. Well, because we're all human and we're all susceptible in one way or another, whether it be genetic or environmental or just luck of the draw to developing of other course. disorders and disease processes. And, uh, and I want people to sort of take care of themselves by recognizing, hey, the doctor said if they've got a good endocrinologist, now they may not have a good endocrinologist and need to see another endocrinologist. But if you have a good pituitary endocrinologist or someone who knows pituitary diseases to at least sort of accept, OK, I will look at these other issues um it's like you know you imagine taking your car in and you say there's a rattle i think it's in my transmission and the the mechanic says there's nothing wrong with your transmission you go home thinking it's my transmission it's got to be uh, but you want to see somebody who knows to look at the pistons and cylinders and other parts of the engine because it may be a fuel pump issue or it may be that you've got yeah. a, a broken ring on a piston or something yeah. like that that's causing your problem so you have to get a good diagnosis and you have to consider all the possibilities for the symptoms and signs because these are not specific symptoms and signs you know every single pituitary disease that i see even though it's all related to different hormones can cause fatigue yeah. you know so uh, and, and I usually tell my patients, we're going to look at all of those different issues and try to see what we can fix. I had one lady today that I thought had uh, growth hormone deficiency and we tested her and it turns out she doesn't have growth hormone deficiency. And she says, well, what are we going to do then? Because I'm tired and fatigued and I don't have any energy and I'm gaining weight. And I said, you know, your thyroid hormone levels are normal. And last time I saw you, we liked them, but there's room to go up on the dose. So I'm going to go up on the dose and yeah. see, uh, if that doesn't fix her, uh, then she needs to see her primary physician and say, why could I be fatigued? Because now my hormone systems are optimized, if you will. So what could potentially be mm -hmm. going on that's uh, leading to my poor sense of well-being? Yeah, it's so complicated. And I think the way that medicine is practiced today with, uh, you know, so, so little time sometimes with a doctor and, uh, you know, th th those things get, get complicated. Yeah, you know, we're all yeah. busy. Uh, uh, I'm I'm available, though. I can see if a patient called me, we can see them within a week, you know, uh, to, whether it's a new patient or a follow up, sometimes the same week. I saw something online today where a patient had uh, noted that they had a three uh, in the one of the pan hypopituitary groups that they had a three month wait to get a visit with an endocrinologist Ooh. for hypopituitarism. That's not yeah. appropriate. You know, that physician should be more able to get a patient in or be more responsive. But with that said, there's a shortage of doctors. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the 1980s, they predicted there would be a doctor glut. So a number of medical schools were closed. Residency slots were closed. I was against that, even though I was in medical school and early residency. I thought, how do they really know what were the needs are going to be You know, 30 years from now? Now we have a deficiency of physicians because of the changes that were made in the 1980s. 
due to these publications where epidemiologists were predicting we had too many doctors, yeah. but we don't, we have too yeah. few. Uh, and uh, part of that, uh, that's part of the reason as to why people have to wait three months to get in. That's why doctors are seeing, you know, 40, 50, 60 patients a day. I would never mm -hmm. do that. You know, to me, I, I don't think I could ever see more than about 20 yeah. a day. Uh, and that would be a long, hard day because most of our patients are like four patients in one because they have a tumor consequences of therapy that we have to deal with, maybe four or five different hormone deficiencies. And each one of those counts almost as a separate patient. You know, when you're thinking about replacing thyroid hormone and steroid and sex steroids and worrying about a tumor and whether they need surgery or radiotherapy or whether it's come back uh, and all the other consequences of uh, some of the side effects of the medications there, it's complex visits. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there just isn't the the bandwidth or number of physicians doing pituitary disease to take care of all these people. So many patients end up in the in the offices of primary care physicians who mostly do diabetes and don't keep up in the pituitary yeah. field. Uh, but I think it behooves patients to seek out the experts and to try to you know you know if you come we'll we'll hire more doctors. That's the way it works at academic medical centers. Usually that's the best place to get your pituitary yeah. care, in my yeah. opinion, for that reason. I agree. Um, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the flip side of it and uh, sort of these nonspecific symptoms and signs of uh, patients who, who have pituitary disorders. And I like to uh, use something that's near and dear to you, having acromegaly as an mm -hmm. example to talk about this, but it applies in Cushing's okay. as well. Um, you know, if you take a look at an article on acromegaly, it will tell you that 95% uh, of people have enlargement of the hands and the feet. 80% uh, of people have coarsening of the facial features. You know, a significant portion of people have this or that or whatever. Uh, and, uh, and you might think that acromegaly is supposed to be recognized by uh, that appearance. The problem is physicians aren't clued into that because most people haven't seen patients with acromegaly. And if you look at the articles that talk about what brings the patient with acromegaly to the doctor, the number one diagnosis is abnormal menses. Of course, that applies to the women. Yeah. Uh, it's not that they presented with enlargement of their hands or their feet or whatever, or change in their appearance. It's they had abnormal periods and someone worked it up and found out that they had uh, uh, a pituitary tumor and found that they had acromegaly. For men, it happens to be a decreased libido is the number one gateway diagnosis to having uh, um, acromegaly. And I will tell you, there are a million things that can cause a decreased libido, maybe a million things that can cause abnormal yeah. menses. Not a million, but you know, you get the point. Yeah. I'm exaggerating, yeah. but you know, a list of 20 things for each of those that would come to mind before you would consider acromegaly. Yeah. And um, the, the most common reason someone enters the medical arena to ultimately get diagnosed with acromegaly is the incidental detection of a pituitary tumor on a brain scan done for some other reason. Not because they were suspected of having pituitary disease, but maybe they hit their head or they had a headache or something like that. Um, and, uh, it's, and this is the problem with syndromes. Uh, Cushing syndrome is a number of different things that look like Cushing's. And we now know that some people don't have a very severe form of that, that particular syndrome and still have the, the, the disease with pituitary tumors or adrenal diseases. Um, but it's really, and, and every patient's different. Tissue sensitivities are different for different people. So some people with acromegaly present with severe sleep apnea. Others are going to have enlargement of the hands or the feet. Some are going to have enlargement of the jaw. Some are going to already have hypertension or heart disease. 
Others are going to have some pulmonary restriction as a result of their their condition. So everybody's different, and and it's it's easy for me as a physician on the other side of the diagnosis. Most of the time, I still diagnose some people. You know, I hit my head in the garage. I had a scan. I have a tumor. They show up, and it's like, oh wow, you have acromegaly. You know, uh, but many people come to me already with the diagnosis, and it's easy to see why people have a delay in diagnosis. And the reason is because these are common symptoms and signs. Weight, Cushing's weight gain. How many people have weight gain? Half of America, especially during COVID. Uh, You know, stretch marks. A lot of anybody who gains any weight is going to get stretch marks. Uh, Easy bruising. That could be due to ibuprofen for your arthritis, you know. Uh, hypertension and diabetes and weight gain are so common with metabolic syndrome and what's formerly known as PCOS in women, but really metabolic syndrome because men get it too. Type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and, and weight gain, those patients might have Cushing's. One study showed that 5% of new type 2 diabetes patients, unselected, have Cushing's. Uh, but uh, that means 95% of people with diabetes don't because diabetes is common. And uh, so all all of these pituitary symptoms, think of prolactinoma, abnormal menses, breast milk production. Well, people taking breast control pills can have have breast milk production. And one study showed only 40% of people with breast milk production actually have a high prolactin. The rest have it from prior pregnancy or birth control or nipple stimulation uh, uh, during foreplay, yeah. for example. So these are common symptoms and signs that are usually due to something else. And pituitary disease is down on that list in a differential diagnosis. And when we start seeing them collected in a group, hopefully the physicians are smart enough to think about a particular syndrome. So, so the issue is uh, what triggers the suspicion, I guess, uh, <laughs> for, a, for a physician. Because when we talk about you know early diagnosis and, <clears throat> and primary care or other types of physicians not recognizing the signs early enough. Um, yeah. It's just, a, is it the fact that you, you say weight gain plus one or two other factors that should? Well, that's what we try yeah. to teach. Like say for, for diabetes mellitus and weight gain or premature osteoporosis, you should be thinking about Cushing's. But what it really takes, I think, is a different type of a thinking physician and you know there are all sorts of different thinkers and different ways of learning and things like that out there but it really takes someone whose mind works differently and thinks about uh, broad strokes and doesn't look at us well you've got diabetes let's put you on insulin or as an oral agent or whatever to control this and here's how you check your glucose you have to say why do you have diabetes yeah what's that let's try to figure that out So one of the most common problems we have is that women have amenorrhea and their gynecologist says, a lot of my women have that. Don't worry about it. Be thankful you're not having periods. That's not medical gaslighting, by the way. That's just doctors are saying what they say to everybody because they're used to the periods ultimately coming back. Uh, And then to me, it's like, yeah, of course, your period is abnormal because of your prolactin level elevation or your pituitary tumor or your acromegaly or whatever. Men have erectile dysfunction. They say to the doc, hey, I can't get an erection for sex. My, it's affecting my marriage. Let's do something. The doctor says, here's a prescription for Viagra. He doesn't think about what's the reason this person's not getting an erection. And if they did think about it and check the testosterone level and found that low, they might simply give testosterone instead of asking the question, why is, it just, why is the yeah. testosterone low? If they ask that question, they maybe check the LH and FSH, find it low and say, maybe something's wrong with the pituitary. And then they find a pituitary tumor. So doctors are busy, but I also think it takes a doctor who has the mindset, I'm going to chase this down. 
but you have to have time. You know, if you're seeing 40 patients a day, you're going to get your prescription Viagra or your testosterone and not going any further than that. And as we see in my practice, people have been on testosterone for four or five, sometimes 10 years before they finally get diagnosed mm -hmm. with their pituitary problem. And then the tumor is invasive and they have to have surgery and radiotherapy and they can never be cured and they end up with hypopituitarism. That's not because they're bad doctors or because doctors were gaslighting them or whatever. It's because doctors were practicing medicine the way they're practicing medicine. And that's the sort of the way most people yeah. do it. So I think that to, to have uh, an early diagnosis and treatment, you almost need an astute clinician who thinks in the manner of let's figure this out. I want an explanation. They have to have the medical curiosity to say, why does this patient have a, 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 a an enlarging hand? Or, you know, they said they just took their, you know, had to get their wedding band cut off in the emergency room, you know. So why did that happen? Yeah. You know, not just to file it away. Oh, patient had to get their wedding band cut off in the ER. Yeah. So why did your hand grow? Why do you have the swelling? Yeah. Yeah. That's what it takes, you know, to get early diagnosis and treatment. But I think, can that be taught? Yes, it can. Can we educate people to start to start thinking that way? Absolutely. This has to come to the medical school levels. Uh, all medical students should hear this kind of a discussion from, from a clinician. Maybe half of them will get it and a quarter of them will yeah. remember it. Uh, and then those quarter will make a positive difference in the lives of their yeah. patients. But as you know, I go to... Berkeley, and we would really like to do this more with other medical schools. The joint program with UCSF and, and Berkeley Medical School joint program, and they study a case of acromegaly that's loosely uh, based on my case, as you know. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, usually the cohort is 15, 20 kids in the class. I've done it, you know, I don't know, uh, since my diagnosis. Yeah. And I will tell you that most of those kids will never miss it, regardless of mm -hmm. where they go to just having had the experience of discussing it and oh, meeting right. someone yeah. with it that was able to chat about it with them. So, uh, so. Yeah. I, you know, I, I have to tell you about a patient that I took care of many, many years ago who I inherited from an endocrinologist who'd left gone to another center. And I go in and I see, this is in the era where we had paper charts. You know, yeah. you had your chart that was either this thick or this thick and depending on how sick you were and how many tests you'd had and all of that. And I walk into the room with this patient's chart that I had read beforehand. And she, this was at an early stage of my career where I was still doing some general endocrinology. I was still the pituitary lead at that institution, but I was doing some general endocrine as well. And I inherited this patient and I had read the chart and I saw that she had hyperlipidemia and osteoporosis and mild diabetes and hypertension and all of these things. And I thought, ah, I wonder if the patient has Cushing's, but the doctor didn't say anything about that in the notes. He's been following the patient for 10 years. And I walk in the room, it's like, gosh, she's got really bad Cushing's, you know? And she just saw this other doctor within six months. Uh, and uh, and I told her, I said, you know, I think you have a disorder called Cushing's syndrome and I want to work out for that. Did this doctor say anything? No, I never said anything about it at all. So I looked in the chart in more detail and it was like, just over a period of about seven to 10 years, this patient had developed one symptom after another of, uh, of uh, Cushing's and was, it wasn't recognized by a doctor who'd seen her periodically over time. Uh, and uh, he's a very, very intelligent endocrinologist. And I don't think he misses much yeah, stuff, yeah. you know, and he missed this one. 
the patient developed Cushing's under his watch over a period of time. Then it took a new physician who'd never seen her to say, oh, this is what you have, you know, and that happens a yeah. lot in my practice. Patients say, yeah, I went to a new doctor and they figured out what I had right away. And a lot of people sort of develop this sort of misplaced anger towards the prior physician who really should be given a break on that, you know, because yes. this kind of stuff does happen. It takes a fresh set of eyes and someone who, who hasn't seen you before and, you know, give the other doctor a break. Maybe they missed it because they're not smart enough, but maybe they missed it because it was creeping up and it didn't make sense to them. And they don't think in the proper way to look at a differential diagnosis. And why does the patient have all these things? And I think your case is exactly just like that. Exactly. Itself. Yeah. Yeah. You probably had acromegaly building up and causing all these symptoms signs for 25 yeah. years. But I think, and it wasn't. If you could look at my chart, which was this thick, like you said, really thick, you probably yeah. would see the development of all of these uh, symptoms and signs that eventually led to somebody else noticed it. But, you know. Uh, yeah, and the other doctor who noticed it, which we'll have him as yes. a guest later and talk about it, um, it was obvious to him up front. Yes. You know, so. Yeah. 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 So, and that's usually the way it is with many yeah. of these particular find disorders. And it's I not find that... fascinating the fact that you know, it's, oh yeah, yeah, you know, just doorway uh, diagnosis. Once you see it, you don't. You know, I don't know if that's totally true, but yeah. uh, you know, it seems to me like if you see it, then you don't you don't miss it. And as you know, my doctor, my primary care physician, had a second case that yeah. he he immediately recognized after he had. Yeah, seen. exactly. So that's yeah. I guess that's what awareness does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I, had, I had another patient, another patient with Cushing's who uh, had uh, been seen by a couple physicians for her uh, weight gain in the hump on the back of her neck. And, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, doctors often like to try to give an explanation for people, even though it's totally stupid. Uh, and to me, that's also not medical gaslighting. Uh, people who like to throw the term medical gaslighting around the internet really need to understand what gaslighting is all about um, and uh, why someone would be gaslit in the first place. Doctors generally are not going to gaslight patients. They may make up stupid excuses and things like that. But uh, uh, believe, believe me, uh, this patient was told, uh, well, haven't you had a few accidents before? Maybe your body's growing extra fat to protect yeah. your spine. I think that's just stupidity and idiocy, lunacy, yeah. not gaslighting. But she ultimately went to see another endocrinologist at the institution that I was seeing who told her, no, nah, at least you don't have diabetes. I don't know why you're gaining weight. Learned that I was a pituitary doctor, came to see me and I walked in the room and was like, I think you got Cushing's. <laughs> and she did. And we operated on her tumor yeah. and took it out. Yeah. You know, so and, and every doctor she had seen was an intelligent guy. But I thought the one who told her that she was growing extra fat was pretty much inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, but patients tend to want explanations. And unfortunately, some doctors do give stupid excuses and try to explain things away without saying the simple three words. I don't yeah. know. And I think that's most important to have a doctor who can say, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And to accept that if a doctor doesn't know to accept yeah. that, you know. I don't know, find someone who's more smarter yeah. than I am in that particular. Or give him a path to, to, to resolve the question. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, so, well, we could spend oh, a lot absolutely. more time talking about this, but I think we're we out of time. Jorge, I was so. just going to tell you, and I, was, I had a bunch of questions that we could probably sit here and talk about 
about this for hours. So, well, let's uh, let's sign off then until next Thursday, and uh, we will publish. I think we have a few guests, and hopefully we will be able to join us next Thursday. If not, we'll have another talk. And um, thank you very much for everybody to joining us, and we'll see you next Thursday. Thank you, Dr. Blevins. Right, thank take you. care. Until Sounds next week. Bye. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.